0: Hi, I'm Edward Sree, and welcome to All Things Catholic, where real faith meets real life. Have you ever wondered, why did Judas Iscariot do what he did? Why did Judas betray Jesus? I mean, think about it. He was one of the disciples. Judas gave up everything to follow Jesus for three years. He followed Jesus, got this intense, special training, learned from Jesus's teachings. Every day he watched Jesus perform miracles, heal people. I mean, he saw a lot. He experienced a lot with Jesus. Why would he betray him? And he wasn't just one of the disciples. Judas was also one of the 12 apostles. He was chosen to be a part of that inner circle, to be an apostle, to to go out and proclaim the kingdom of God to others and, and to preach the gospel of the kingdom and heal diseases and infirmities himself. Judas experienced so much. He was one of the closest friends Jesus had. Why did he betray Jesus? Was it really just for money? 30 pieces of silver? Or was there something more? Perhaps a more important question we should all ponder is, could something like that ever happen to me? Is it possible that I could possibly turn away from Jesus? I'm close to him. I love him. I'm faithful. I go to mass. I'm orthodox. But could I turn away someday? Or could my spouse turn away or someone else I love or my children, a friend, a family member? What is it that makes someone who... Is close to Christ, follows the Catholic faith, maybe even be involved in various ministries and doing good things for the church. What is it that makes them suddenly turn away like Judas? That's what we're going to look at in this week's podcast. So, welcome to All Things Catholic. I'm your host, Edward Sree. And I want to welcome any new listeners joining us here uh, on the All Things Catholic podcast and checking it out for the first time. Thanks for for being with us here. I know I have a number of new people listening from a number of events I've been doing recently, so one of the blessings, really, of doing these virtual online events for various groups around the country is I get to do ministry with my wife again. Uh, so Beth and I, you may know, we were involved with Focus at the very beginning, from the very birth of Focus. My wife was one of the first female Focus missionaries, and it was always so fun leading Bible studies together and other things, but you know, with family life, and she's not able to travel around the world with me. <laughs> but uh, in light of COVID, we've been able to do a lot of these online events. So I'm going to give a big shout out to the love and responsibility young adult group in Los Angeles, Love and Responsibility LA. We were able to do a session with them last week on the realities of marriage. And that was so fun to talk, not just about the church's theology of marriage and theology of the body and how beautiful marriage is, but also about the the challenges of marriage, how marriage is really hard. A lot of people don't talk about that. (laughs) They don't talk about how demanding it is and and, and the struggles that every couple faces and how Jesus wants to meet us in those struggles. So thank you for having us. So big shout out to that group there, Love and Responsibility LA. Also a shout out to the women's group at St. Mary's in Covallis, Oregon, the students at George Mason University, the St. Francis of Assisi Lake Tahoe. We're continuing our Lenten Bible series together. That was wonderful. But a special shout out to all of the people in the Diocese of Arlington. It was so fun to be able to travel to the Diocese of Arlington, Virginia this last weekend. I spoke at St. Timothy's Parish in Chantilly. And uh Deacon Harold and I spoke at the Arlington Men's Conference. And it's just, it's just great seeing some parishes and dioceses starting to open up, providing opportunities again for people to come together in fellowship safely and but but still be able to encounter Christ in the Word of God and in each other and in the Eucharist. Eucharist, and uh, just what a blessing it was to to meet so many great faithful Catholic people again out there in parishes uh, in the Arlington Diocese. So thank you so much. I want to turn to this topic, though, of Judas, and I want us to really— Consider not just Judas like this bad guy that's out there. I think some people think, you know, maybe, well, did, you know, did God need a Judas, you know, so Judas was just, he had to have a bad guy, someone had to betray Jesus. And so I guess Judas just had to play the part, poor Judas. (laughs) No, no, it's not like that. I think the Jewish leaders were dead set against Jesus long before they got Judas to betray him. You know, we read about this way back in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 9, verse 34, way back at the very beginning of the rise of Jesus's public ministry, the Pharisees up there, the Jew, they're the primary Jewish influential group, uh, the leaders there, the Pharisees in Galilee, they were already really upset with Jesus. They were accusing him of being satanic. They're saying this man can't be a prophet sent from God. How could he be? I mean, he's touching lepers. hes He's having meals with sinners and tax collectors. He's offering forgiveness of sins apart from our precious temple and the Levitical priesthood, this can't be a prophet sent from God. He must be a false prophet. And the only reason he's doing all these miracles is the, the devil's working through him. I mean, that's what they accuse him of way back in Matthew chapter 9, verse 34. In Matthew 12, verses, uh, f- verses 10 through 14, you can read about how they start plotting against him. They're actually way back up in Galilee. They are plotting against Jesus's life, trying to bring him to his demise. So this is a long, probably three-year process of Jewish leaders conspiring against Jesus. And it really comes to a head in Holy Week when it's the Pharisees in an alliance with their rivals, you know, the, the Sadducees. I mean, imagine if the Democrats and Republicans in our very polarized country came together to fight against someone. Well, <laughs> that's kind of what you see happening, you know, in the first century Jewish world, because the Sadducees and Pharisees usually didn't get along, but they did have a common enemy, and that was Jesus. And so they worked together together to conspire, to bring Jesus to his death. Now, certainly Judas made it easier for them. You know, they, they didn't have to take Jesus in the middle of the day with the large crowds all around and make a big circus about it. They could, you know, could arrest him a little more quietly. But uh, so Judas was, was helpful, certainly for for the the Sanhedrin. But in the end, they would have found some way. They were already dead set against him. They would have found a way to arrest Jesus. In fact, we know from the Gospels, they tell us many times the Jewish leaders were trying to arrest him. So yes, did Judas play a very horrible part in the story? Of course, but it's not like he had to. He freely chose to become a part of the story. Sadducees and the Pharisees would have gotten Jesus some other way, but Judas willingly chose to reject his discipleship, reject Jesus, betray Jesus, and play a part in the Sadducees and Pharisees' plot against Christ. What was it that made Judas take this turn? What was it that made him do this? You know, what is it that makes... Other Christians today, people who might be involved in various works of mercy in their local diocese, works of ministry in their local parish, what is it that might even make someone that's really faithful and on fire with the Catholic faith suddenly turn away? Let's take a look at Judas as a case study here. One thing that's clear, so I'm going to start with what's clear from Scripture, and then I'm going to move to other indications, suggestions that Scripture makes. But the one thing that is clear is that it did have to do with money. There, there was, that was a, a, an important piece of what was going on. Judas, we know, was a man full of greed, and he was a thief. That's made clear to us in John's gospel, chapter 12, verse 6. It tells us that Judas was the, the kind of, he was the one that kept the money. He was like the treasurer for the group. And it tells us that he had been taking money for himself, money that should have been going to the poor. So th- that, that's already a sign of a man lacking great character. Not only is he a thief stealing money, he's stealing money that should have been given to the poor. That's like a, a double level of sin. <laughs> and we can tell he was a man full of greed. Do you remember the story in John chapter 12? He was upset that that woman, Mary of Bethany, had spent all of the you know expensive ointments uh, and, and perfumes to, to pour it on Jesus and to, to kiss Jesus's feet and to anoint his feet. You know, do you remember that story in John 12? Well, what does Judas say in John 12 verse 5? He says, why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii, you know that could have been given to the poor. He's trying to kind of make feign that he really cares about the poor. We know he's been stealing from the poor, but three hundred denari—that's that, a lot of money. I mean, a denari was considered about a day's wage, so that's that's almost a year's worth of of wages. You know, almost a, a, an annual salary. Uh, so she was super generous as she was showing her love for Christ and preparing him. Symbolically here for Christ's burial, but but Judas doesn't like this. He's really upset because we know he he wanted some of that money for himself. We also know that in the end it was money that led him to betray Christ, right? Because the chief priests offer him thirty pieces of silver. So money is definitely a part of this. But I think there may be some other things going on. There may be some other pieces to the story. Fulton Sheen says this. And he says this about not just Judas, but about all big sins in someone's life. He says, there must also be an interior failure before there can be an outward one. There must also be an interior failure before there can be an outward one. Maybe you don't commit adultery. Maybe you don't steal from your company or steal from your church. But do you have some interior failures? Interior shortcomings. Maybe you don't commit adultery, but do you guard your eyes? Do you guard your eyes? Do you guard your heart and your emotions? Are you truly faithful to Jesus? Or if you're married, are you truly faithful to your spouse? Giving your heart totally to your spouse and not glancing at other other people and looking at them lustfully or images on screens. There's always an interior failure that precedes bigger outward failures. Again, maybe I don't steal money from the safe at my company, but interiorly, do I steal the time that I should be giving to the company by socializing too much at work or playing with social media, or looking at my favorite game, you know, checking in on the score throughout the day and not really giving my best to my work? I mean, these little interior failures keep me from giving the best of myself to my spouse, to my God, to my employer. Do I give my best of myself to my kids? Little interior failures, you know, maybe I don't do harmful things to them, but am I too distracted with work, too preoccupied with just entertaining myself, catching up on the news, clicking and clicking on social media? These kinds of things keep me from giving the best of myself to my kids. There's always an interior failure that precedes an outward one. We have to be really careful with these things. The small things. St. Therese says it's in the little things that love is proven. How often do we fail in love in those little things? Let's turn to Judas here. You know, what do we learn from Judas, from the, from the, about Judas, from the scriptures? Well, he's called Judas Iscariot. What does that mean? Well, some scholars say Iscariot means a man of Cariath. Iscariot is probably a reference to the village near Hebron that's mentioned a couple times in the Old Testament. You can read about that in Joshua 15, 25, or Amos 2, 2. So what that would tell us is this, this little village near Hebron is in the south. It's in the region of Judah. And that would tell us that Judas would be the only apostle. This is what, what Iscariot means. Judas would be the only apostle who's not from Galilee. So maybe from the very beginning, maybe Judas was kind of like an outsider. He was the guy from the south. He wasn't as connected as the others from the north up in Galilee. He already felt a little bit on the outside perhaps. Maybe that's part of what was going on. There's another uh, another line of interpretation that Iscariot is from the Greek word sakarios, which means literally the assassin. It's a reference to uh, people that were associated with the revolt movements, like the dagger men, people that were kind of like, you know, first century Jewish terrorists, if you will, they would have a dagger and then, then the large crowds, they would assassinate someone with their dagger. And then because they're in a large crowd, they they couldn't be caught as easily. Could Judas, you know, his name Iscariot, connected to Sicarius, could, could he be connected with the Sicarii either himself or his family had some sympathies for the revolt movements? That also could be part of the case, uh, of what's going on here. But again, Fulton Sheen says there must be an interior failure before there can be an outward one. What was Judas's interior failure long before he was even a thief or full of greed? I think there was something that happened one year before Holy Week, one year before Judas betrayed Christ. If you go to John's Gospel, chapter 6, I want to take you there. I, I think this is something John's gospel is pointing to, and it's the first time we're going to read about something being off with Judas. If you want to understand what was it that led to Judas's betraying Christ, turn to John chapter 6. If you want to understand what might lead someone today to turn away from Christ— What's that interior failure? Look at John 6. Here's what happens. In John chapter 6, verses 1 through 12, Jesus performs his greatest miracle to date. He's just performed the miracle of multiplying the loaves to feed 5,000 people. This is incredible and the people are ecstatic they say, wow, he must be the great prophet who is to come. In fact, in John chapter 6 verse 15 tells us they want to carry him off and make him king. I mean think about this Jesus has the people in the palm of his hands he's reached the height of his his popularity. this is the height of his public approval ratings, if you will you know so it's it, he's really got the I'm so excited this amazing miracle feeding 5000 people they want to carry him off and make him king messiah the great king maybe the the leader that's going to help fight off the enemies and you know free us from rome and and establish the davidic kingdom again but the next day jesus is going to say something that makes his Public approval ratings just plummet. He's going to say something the next day that's going to make these same people that love him and want him to be king, these same people are going to hate him <laughs> and oppose him and walk away from him. What did he talk about? In John chapter 6, verses 35 through 59, he talks about the bread of life. He teaches about the Eucharist, the famous bread of life discourse when he says, my flesh is food indeed, my blood is drink indeed, you must eat my flesh and drink my blood. Unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man, you have no life in you. So he talks all about his, partaking of his body and blood in the Eucharist, and the people are confused. They're wondering, who is this man that he, that he gives us his flesh to eat? That's disgusting. What is he talking about? And Jesus is relentless because he so much wants to give us the gift of himself in the Eucharist. He's not going to water down this teaching. He wants to be close to us. Love wants to be near the one it loves, and Jesus is love incarnate, and he wants to be near to us in the tabernacles in our churches and dwelling within us in holy communion. This is the gift of the Eucharist he's teaching about. And at the end of this, we have many of his own disciples in John chapter 6, verse 60. It tells us that they're very confused about this. And they're grumbling and they're wondering, you know, what is he talking about? And in the end, Jesus doesn't, doesn't soften the teaching in any way. He continues to teach about the Eucharist. And after this, in John chapter 6, verse 66, so John 6 6 6. It's interesting, the numbers there. It says, after this, many of his disciples drew back and no one went about with him. Many of his own disciples no longer want to follow Jesus anymore because of his teaching on the Eucharist. And it's here we're going to get the first clue about Judas, a foreshadowing of Judas's betrayal. Right after this, he turns to his apostles and he says, are you also going to leave me? So many of his own disciples leave him. The crowds leave him. And then he turns to that inner circle, the 12, and he says, Are you also going to leave me? And Peter basically says, Lord, where else are we going to go? You have the words of everlasting life. (laughs) We've come to believe in you. I don't know what you're talking about. This doesn't all make sense to me, but I trust you. That's what Peter basically says. But then Jesus goes on to give these ominous words foreshadowing Judas's betrayal. It's in John chapter 6, verses 70 and 71. Jesus answered them, did I not choose you, the 12, and one of you is a devil? He spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the 12, was to betray him. So it's the first time we get from Jesus a foreshadowing about Judas's betrayal. So something happened that day. You get the sense Jesus knows that he, you know, all the crowds are leaving him many of his own disciples who had been following him for these two years, it's two years of his ministry up to this point, many of them just leave him over the teaching of the Eucharist. And and he's left with the 12, and he asks, are you also going to leave? And, and Peter steps forward and says, nope, we're not going to leave you. We're with you. But it's as if Jesus knows on the inside, somebody's not with him. On the inside, someone's upset about this teaching on the Eucharist. And that's why Jesus says, "Didn't I choose you? And one of the twelve, and it, it, I chose, I chose you, the twelve, and one of you is a devil. In other words, one of you is going to start following the ways of the devil." I, I think what happened that day. There's two things that rattled Judas that day: the teaching on the Eucharist. I think in the end. He himself had some doubts about it. He, he couldn't accept it. There was something with him just not at peace about the teaching on the Eucharist. He didn't like it, but he didn't come out and protest. He didn't come out and express his objection. He didn't walk away like the crowds. He didn't walk away like those other disciples. He kind of just secretly stayed around, but interiorly, like Volanchine said, on the inside, Judas was withholding his heart from the gift of Jesus's body and blood in the Eucharist that he just taught about. I think maybe even a bigger thing this is the second thing that happened is Judas also saw the effect of this teaching. He saw that wow, Jesus just, you know, lost everybody. You know, especially if Judas is from the south and maybe he, you know, he was associated with some of the revolt movements and uh, if that is the case, maybe he was really upset. That, that here they were, they were about to, the crowds were, were claiming Jesus as king and Judas is all excited. This is the moment because he's hoping Jesus will be that revolutionary Messiah King and go fight off the Romans and liberate the people, have this political kingdom established, and he would get to ride the coattails with Jesus all the way into Jerusalem. He might get a nice cabinet position in this new kingdom, in this new administration. <laughs> you know, maybe you know all of a sudden at the beginning of John 6, he, he's starting to picture the dream. That's all going to happen now. They want him as king. We've got it. And I'm going to get this power with Jesus. It's awesome. And then Jesus just loses everything by teaching about the Eucharist. And maybe Judas was resenting Jesus that day. Why did you do this? You're ruining my career plans, Jesus. (laughs) I was going to follow you to, you know, get into the kingdom and, you know, have this great position and we were going to overthrow Rome and I would get to have this glory in the kingdom. You know, maybe there was a sense that Judas was more ambitious for himself than ambitious for love. And ambitious for Christ's kingdom. He was more focused on himself. And as a result, he was so disappointed in Jesus that day, but he didn't say anything. On the inside, he withheld his consent to Christ. The, he withheld giving his heart to the gift of the Eucharist. And he was deeply frustrated that Jesus did not rally the people and accept being their king. So, there could be many other things happening there i want to be clear some of this is we're, we're taking insights from scripture and making some application and suggesting this could be what happened with judas there's a couple of things that are clear and I, I would say the one thing that is clear is that judas he right here in john 6 one year this is this is around the time of passover by the way it's, it's right around the time of Passover that John six took place. The bread of life discourse It's there that Judas is singled out by Jesus specifically. So it's the first allusion to Jesus pointing to how Judas is going to betray him. So something happened that day. I think it was his frustration with the teaching of the Eucharist and his frustration that Jesus didn't accept the kingship and ruined his political dreams. <laughs> so we know that one year later, exactly on the very next Passover, It'll be at the Passover meal that Judas walks out to betray Christ. My friends, what practical application do we have here? Well, for us, if we don't want to be like Judas, we want to be faithful all the days of our lives. We need to be humble and recognize that You know, our faith is a great gift and we should always pray that God keep us always close to him. I'll never forget a prayer that a priest taught me to pray when I was like in seventh grade and I kind of instinctively still pray this to this day. He said every day, pray, you know, Jesus, you know, always keep, you know, keep me close to you. Help me to be good. Keep me always close to you. And and I just instinctively prayed that prayer ever since I was a little seventh grader. Uh, But we should really pray for that humbly, because if we know ourselves and we know our weaknesses, if we face certain trials and crosses, maybe we would turn away. We should never presume upon our faithfulness. Let's be humble. That's the first thing. Second thing, we should always trust Jesus and the church's teachings. Judas didn't trust that day. It's not as if Peter fully understood the Eucharist and transubstantiation, but he trusted Jesus in our own crazy world, I know there's many teachings that sometimes people have hard time with, like the church's teachings on marriage or sexuality or contraception, whatever it might be. Always trust Jesus. Trust the church. Even if you don't fully understand, trust that Jesus and the church and the great saints that have gone before us, they're so much bigger and holier than I, than we'll ever be. Let's trust them. Put our trust there. And then finally, let's not seek approval from this world like Judas was. Let's not try to fit in and seek applause, seek ratings. I think it's always dangerous, especially when we're doing ministry, whether it's in a parish, in a diocese, or people that have platforms. If they're always checking, how many viewers do I have? How many followers? How many likes? How many comments? That's a really bad place to place our hearts. No, no, we want the praise of the angels and the saints, not the the praise of men and women we don't even know, that's vain. That's vanity. Let's not focus so much on that. Let's not try to fit in. And because when we do that, we tend to water things down. We water down the truth because we're just trying to get likes. Well, sometimes preaching the truth will not get applause. It might get you the cross. <laughs> that's that's what it did for Jesus. You know, uh, We're called to be signs of contradiction. Let's stand with Jesus in the truth, in the cross, not be like Judas. I hope you found this helpful. If you want to learn more about Judas and more about Christ's passion as a whole, everything I've been sharing with you is from my book that I wrote, which is hopefully a helpful guide during the Lenten season. It's called No Greater Love, A Biblical Walk Through Christ's Passion. I have a whole chapter just on the mystery of this man, Judas. Uh, Again, the book is called No Greater Love, A Biblical Walk Through Christ's Passion. And you can always reach out to me on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram, or on my website, edwards3.com. And pray for me. I'll be praying for you this Lent. Thanks so much, and God bless.